We're going to jump in. We're week uh, three now of our series called The Letters. And what we're doing is we are jumping around in First Timothy and Second Timothy, um, looking at letters written from the great missionary and evangelist Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy. Uh, Timothy, at this point, is pastoring the church in Ephesus. And this week we're jumping. We have been the last couple weeks in First Timothy this week we are jumping over to Second Timothy, the second letter written from mentor to mentee. Um, and according to theologians, this is one of the last letters written by Paul. Um, it, it is uh, his last recorded words in the scriptures, but they believe maybe one of his, some of his last recorded words ever. And so I think that it's worth acknowledging that and putting weight on that because I think that last words matters. Last words should have um, a weight about them. And so I wonder if you've ever thought in your life about your last words, like what will your last words be? There's a man in the Vineyard Church named John Mumford. And um, he and his wife, Eleanor, uh, started the Vineyard Church in England. It spread all over Europe. Fun fact, he, his son has a um, small unknown band called Mumford and Sons, if you've ever heard of them. And um, <laughs> the Vineyard, we've got all the music. We had Bob Dylan for a minute when, during his Jesus face. And um, so anyway, so John and Eleanor Mumford, they started the Vineyard in England. And they're, they're, I, I am fascinated with them. And so I listen to their sermons because I'm a dork and um, I love them. But uh, John Mumford has this hobby where he collects people's last words. Like, he wants to know when people die what their last words were. It's a fascinating hobby to me because um, I don't think about death ever. I am so pie in the sky. I rarely think about dying. Um, I, I've never once thought about what I hoped my last words would be. I think some people think about it often. Some of you may think about death and last words often. Um, but I never have. So, I sometime recently listened to John Mumford talk about this, and then as I was um, preparing for today, I started Googling people's last words, and there's some interesting things out there if you Google famous people's last words. That was my search. Um, and, and here's one. There, there's, there are, like, really important last words that happen. Like, um, Albert Einstein, if you Google his last words, um, allegedly there, there's this paper that he wrote uh, about his last words were this beautiful, um, like, plea fighting for world peace with ideas of how it could come to, to be. So Albert Einstein, his last words were very important, um, and there are lots like that. There are also some absolutely hilarious last words of people. Um, John Mumford, one of his favorites is uh, he read that the last words of one man were, Doctor, do you think it was the sausage? And then he died. That was how he went out. I read about this man um, called Kit Carson. Kit Carson was an American pioneer and a fur trapper in the mid-1800s. The article, the article I read about him called Chuck Norris before Chuck Norris. And th these were his final words. I wish I had time for one more bowl of chili. That's good chili. And, and the reason that is so hilarious to me is I promise you, my husband, those will be his last words. <laughs> Daniel spends, and it's so hot now, and I think it's sad for him, but he spends October through March putting as much chili into a body as one man can possibly do. So um, here's another one. This is incredible. Peter the Great. Peter the Great um, was a, ruled the, the Russian Empire in the early 1700s. Um, and allegedly on his deathbed, he said this. Give everything back to and then died. This Russian czar who ruled everything, he had one final command. He said, Give everything back to 
and died. I don't know if there's anything more powerful in this world than a cliffhanger death. <laughs> like leaving people for now. I want to know who they were. I don't even know anyone in Russia ever. But I'm dying to know who he was supposed to give everything back to. Um, so there's good ones. There's, there's important ones. There's hilarious ones. There are some truly, truly special ones. I hope in your life at some point you get to be the collector of someone's very special and very intimate last words. Um, I was thinking this week, uh, my grandmother, who is my hero in this life, um, she lost her memory toward the end of her life. And um, so she ends up in the hospital and it's the time she goes to the hospital that she's never going to come back out. And so we're in the emergency room and and the doctors have kind of called and said, it's time. Everybody needs to come say goodbye. And she hadn't remembered me really for months. And I remember walking in the door, and she looks up, and she says, Lindsay, those are sweet last words. Your own name being said by the person you admire most in the whole world. She said, Lindsay. Um, it turned out that that was not her last night, so those were not her last words, um, though I would have bragged about that forever to the rest of my family. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but what happened later is her, her brain kind of went back out again, and so she spent a few weeks in the hospital, and, um, and it really her brain had completely floated away. But there was this moment, so my last words that she said to me, I have on video, um, there's this moment where she, she had been talking about how she needed to go pick up a test from high school or something. I mean, she was kind of out of it. And then out of nowhere, she starts quoting Psalm 23. And so she's looking at me, and just from her memory, she says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Those are very, very sweet and very, very important last words. And here in 2 Timothy, we have some of Paul's last words, and they are very sweet, sometimes hilarious depending on how you read the scriptures, and very, very important these words, they're being written by Paul who's sitting in prison as he writes them, writing to his dearly loved friend, writing to this man that he absolutely adores, who, who he's trained and love. Paul, he's writing um, as someone who has followed Jesus through thick and thin for decades. Paul's entire life, um, after he has this radical transformation experience, the rest of his life is dedicated to spreading the name of Jesus and planting churches all over the Roman Empire. Paul, uh, he's the man who walked with the disciples and fought with the disciples. Uh, at one point, he's shipwrecked. He was arrested multiple times. He's beaten within an inch of his life all throughout his journeys. Um, this is who's writing this letter. Someone who has something to say. And these are his last words. Paul, who had quite literally given everything that he had to make much of Jesus. And the way he begins his very last letter that we have in our canon is this. He starts out asking God for grace and mercy and peace. Grace and mercy and peace. They are the themes of Paul's life and themes of his writing. Paul, he reminds Timothy how much he loves him. He starts it and finishes it with, with how grateful he is for Timothy, how much he loves him. And then he invites Timothy to look back at the roots of his faith. Paul, he highlights the importance of remembering where Timothy's faith came from. And then he tells him why it matters that he looks back. Um, why it matters that he would remember. Tucked right in the middle of, of our lesson today of these last words of Paul is, is, is a very important something for anyone that's trying to follow Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to go back and read uh, verses 6 and 7 with you. I, I didn't prompt you to do that, Dixie, but verse 6, this is what he says. He says, this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. 
For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Another translation says it like this. Paul says, Timothy, I remind you of these things in order for you to rekindle the gift that God has given you. Tucked right in the middle of these last words of Paul is something very important for us. For anyone who's trying to follow Jesus, Paul tells Timothy that to live a life poured out in power and to live a life of love and not a life of fear and timidity, then we must rekindle the gift of the Spirit inside us. We must intentionally stir up the grace and faith and love that we have been given by a gracious God who has chased after and found us. Paul uses his last words to Timothy to remind him to rekindle the wildfire, to rekindle the spirit of God inside him. I think these are good words for Timothy 2,000 years ago, and I think that they are good words for us today. I think they are important words and sweet words for us today. Uh, I think it's important that we learn how to stir up the grace and the faith and the mercy that we have been given that we learn how to rekindle the gift that God has given us. And so uh, we're going to talk about, I think Paul really gives us in this short little text, he gives us three ways um, to rekindle the gift inside us. The first way is this. The first way that we stir up that affection, we stir up the spirit of God inside us, is, um, is by remembering, learning the art of remember. Paul spends all 14 verses in some way reminding Timothy to remember Paul, he reminds Timothy, remember where your faith came from. And I think it's incredibly important for us to do the exact same thing today. That it's incredibly important for us to take the time and the intention to look back at our lives. Intentionally, on purpose, to look back at where we've been and where we've come from. To appreciate the faithful people that have shown up in our lives that have loved us enough to put us in the pathway of Jesus. I think as a people, um, particularly as Americans, we are so forward thinking. And that's a really good thing. It is a good thing to be forward thinking. But sometimes being so forward thinking, um, it eclipses the joy and the celebration of where we've been. Sometimes we're looking forward so much that we forget to celebrate and to remember where we've been. And so we have to learn to practice remembering in order to stir our affections for the things that have happened in our lives, for the places that we've been. For me, um, this has become an intentional practice. Like I, I calendar it. I have to schedule it because I'm all on to the next thing all the time. But I want to practice remembering. And here's what happens when I doubt when I struggle with God, when I am confused or dismayed about how bonkers this life can be as a human being, few things stir in me affection for God quite like remembering where I've come from. Uh, looking back on my life and seeing the pathways of the God who chased after me as long as I can go back. It rekindles something inside me. Looking at the stories of, of people of great faith who have filled my days. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Remember Lois, your grandmother, Eunice, your mother, me, people of great faith who have filled your days. And my story is similar. I have parents of great faith and grandparents of great faith. I had young life leaders who chased me into the wilderness in the name of Jesus. I have friends who have fought with me and for me, counselors who have have traveled into the darkest holes. It is so important for us to carve out space in our lives to remember the gift that God, gifts that God has given us on a personal level, where you've actually been, 
where he actually met you. Those things are often a lot easier to see backward than they were to see in the middle of it, right? But it's not just on a personal level that Paul says to remember. Um, For followers of Jesus, remembering happens personally, but remembering also happens communally. And so it's like a double art form that we have to learn. We, we uh, would be well served to learn how to remember um, our own stories and our own past, but also to learn the art of remembering the big story as well. Remembering the communal story, the big stories of the people of God rescued constantly by him in the Old Testament. And, and the big story of the New Testament with the, with the church that spreads like wildfire. We're, we're served well when we spend time in those stories, remembering those stories. Uh, this will make me sound like a preacher, and for the first time, maybe I'm okay with it. Um, but <laughs> uh, studying church history is one of the ways that my affection gets stirred for God. That um, I get rekindled um, by the Spirit of God is by looking at the story of the church. Here's why. The story of the church makes no sense. Have, Have you spent any time looking at it? On paper, the story of the church is absolutely bananas. Like, if if Jesus isn't real, and if the church isn't his bride, then it makes no sense that we ended up sitting in this room today. The story of the church is wild, and it is messy, and it is wonderful, and it is almost impossible to believe when you look at it. There are absolutely, I mean, for since its beginning, there are absolutely atrocious horrible and atrocious things that have been done by the church in the name of Jesus. It, it should have been stopped. It makes no sense that we are still having church here. But when you look back at church history and you remember how to learn, or you learn how to remember communally, what you find is the stories of uh, centuries of mothers, church mothers and church fathers who God has created pathways in the wilderness for the last 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, God has been rescuing and redeeming his church. And it is fascinating. And you find these like superhero people in the stories of the church. Has anyone ever heard of uh, Polycarp? I thought, I thought Katie raised her hand. Okay, Polycarp is, is one of the first uh, saints. He was one of the earliest church fathers. So like second century, the, the theologians believe that Polycarp was trained by John the beloved disciple. So the person that wrote Revelation, John, disciple of Jesus, trained this man named Polycarp. And, and what he did is he spent his entire life fighting for the spread of the church uh, through the simple and pure gospel that we talked about a few weeks ago. Fighting every time someone tried to add to the gospel. And, and he, he was the one who followed the New Testament. So the New Testament ends and then Polycarp comes on the scene. And, and he, he discipled early church fathers like Arrhenius and Tertullian and Jerome. And, and these people, he took these people and he spread them out all over the world. He did absolutely incredible things. And his story ends with him getting burned at the stake. But here's the best part. I don't know that this is the best part. It's a fascinating part. It doesn't work. He gets burned at the stake and he does not, it doesn't work. Like he cannot be burned. And so he ends up having uh, to be stabbed in order to die. And so instead of shutting down Christianity in this moment, what happens is the wildfire doesn't overtake uh, Polycarp. It overtakes the world. Around the same time, there's a woman named St. Bernadine, uh, no, no, Blandina. I said her name wrong. Anyone know her? 
St. Blandina, she's a beast lady. She's amazing. I just learned about her. She has a really similar story to Polycarp. Uh, She too was burned at the stake. Same thing. She spreads the gospel everywhere, is faithful to Christ, makes much much of Jesus her whole life. It ends with her in the center of town. They put her in front of everyone. They put her on a stake. Uh, they, They burn her at the stake and it doesn't work. Same story. It doesn't work. And so this is horrible. They send wild animals in. Doesn't work. Like, they cannot kill her. She ends up, again, being stabbed with a dagger. Sorry, I should have warned you. PG-13. Um, here's another one. St. Anselm. Anyone heard of St. Anselm? Uh, a few years ago, I had the best meal I've ever had in my entire life, and it was at a restaurant called St. Anselm in Brooklyn. And, um, and I also, side note, think that good food should be on the list of how we rekindle the fire of the Spirit in our lives because um, there's something about good food that reminds you that God loves you and that you're on a mission, like the world's going to be okay. Um, so we go, Daniel and I go eat at this restaurant, St. Anselm, and, and I'm so fascinated with the restaurant. I come home and I do research on it, and I find that Anselm is actually a real person. Actually, the way I found that out is I was with my friend Doug, the angler, looking priest and I'm, he's asking about my trip to New York and I tell him I ate this place St. Anselm and he says oh do you know about him and I'm like no and so Doug starts to to tell me and so what happens is I learn the story of St. Anselm and my the stirring of my affection went beyond the steak that I ate and I find myself reading about um, St. Anselm was in the middle of this battle this early battle between church and state and he's fighting for the purity of the church and the purity of the state and he gets exiled twice in his life um, from two different governors and he and he spends his life fighting on behalf of the church, and people keep coming. Um, there's more, saint after saint after saint, people throughout all of history, movements throughout all of history. Another favorite of mine um, happened in, in, the 19th, in, in the early 1900s. What's that, the 20th century? I almost said 19th, 20th century. Okay, early 1900s. Has anyone heard of Azusa Street? Maybe a few more? Okay, if you haven't, A-Z-U-S-A, Google it this week. Azusa Street, um, uh, it, it, it's it's amazing the story. It, Azusa Street is the the Azusa Street revival is the birth of the Pentecostal Church in America. And it starts out with this man named William Seymour, and William Seymour is a black preacher in Louisiana, and he's doing his thing. And then he hears word of a man named Charles Parman, Parham who's in Texas, and he hears that Charles Parman, Parham is talking about the Holy Spirit. And William Seymour's having these weird things happen with him and the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't know what to do with it. So he goes to Texas. Uh, I mean, this is 1900. He goes to Texas, finds his way there, finds, finds Charles Parham at the school that he's teaching at. And he comes to him and he says, you're talking about the Holy Spirit and there's wild things happening. Are you Charles Parham? And he says, yes, I am. And he says, can I learn from you? Can I come to your class? And Parham says, no, because you're black. He says, you can't come to my class, but you can sit and listen outside the window. How demeaning. I'm telling you, there are atrocious things done in the name of Jesus from the church. But William Seymour does. He sits outside the window and he takes in every piece of information he can from Charles Parham. And he takes all of that information about the Holy Spirit and he moves to L.A., like Los Angeles, L.A. And he starts this church in an upstairs living room of an apartment building. And what happens is revival breaks out everywhere. He starts a church service in 1906. The service ends, I'm not kidding you, in 1915. Six years of almost 24 hours a day, people being prayed for, people getting healed, church happening. That's a very tired man. You think you're tired. He's been doing church for six years. It's all you can do to show up, you know, like 
a couple times a month or once a week. This is hard. Six years. For six years, there's rumors that people walked up on the street. They got within a block of where um, the Azusa Street Revival is happening. They're not even at the apartment. They would walk up to the block and get healed. It's like crazy, crazy stories. Google it. I remember hearing it for the first time, hearing about William Seymour, his story and his life, and weeping, thinking that happened and how gracious God was to spread it anyway. Weeping at how sure William Seymour must have been that God loved him to sit outside a window and listen to a racist. Even still, When you read the story of William Seymour, the credit of what he learned goes to a man who wouldn't let him in the room. From one person to the next, one group to the next, one movement to the next, the church has always spread. It brings us to today. Remembering doesn't always have to be hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago. For me, sometimes just going back a few years is soul-stirring. We, a couple of weeks ago, we met for our 15th anniversary of the Vineyard organization, and we all sat in a park, and it was soul-stirring. It was soul-stirring to remember when we uh, used to meet in a condemned room. We didn't find out it was condemned till it caught on fire. <laughs> Electrical. And then we went to the, 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 there's a hotel on Alcoa Highway. It's, um, it, it's, it was awful. And, and we started this church, and now 15 years later, thousands of people have walked in the doors and experienced Jesus. It came from nothing, and it became something, and, and that's soul-stirring. When I think of this room, when I think of Springbrook, what God has done in this church in four years, that's all, in like two weeks, we'll be four years old. Is that still a toddler? We're not even in school yet. We're so young and it's so early, but God has brought hundreds of people through the doors of a middle school band room. Amazing people and broken people in through those doors. Broken people have walked. Broken marriages have walked. Broken hearts have walked. People, some of you, me, we have been restored and rescued and put back together in this very young church that's just getting started. That is soul-stirring. It is good for us to remember what can happen when the kingdom of God breaks through and gets to work in the world. Here at Vineyard Springbrook and throughout the history of the church, that is the story. Throughout history, person after person, movement after movement, this continuous train of the church has never, ever, ever stopped. Do you know that? It's never stopped. Never. Sometimes I think we get worried about the church and where it's headed. I get worried about the church and where it's headed. I see things or I read things and I think, how on earth can the church survive this mess? But the truth is that the story of history since the very beginning is of a God who will chase after his people, who will refine his message when it needs refining, who will set it free into the world to spread like wildfire. And so we look back on our lives and we look back on the church and we do not have to be afraid of where it's going. We do not, Paul says, live with a spirit of timidity or fear for ours is a story of power and love. The story of the church is of power and of love and is a good thing for us to remember that. Two more things and I'll be quick because that took me a really long time. 
How do we rekindle the fire inside us, the fire of the Spirit? How do we stir up the faith and love and grace inside of us? Uh, We remember. And then the next thing I think Paul says we do is that we put grace and love and faith into practice. How do we stir it up inside us? We put it into practice. Paul tells Timothy, do not be ashamed to practice the good news. It is so easy for us to forget that following Jesus, living as if we have been found by the one who made us, it is an active life. It's not passive, it's, it's active. It's an active practice. If we want to rekindle the faith inside us, rekindle the love and the grace inside us, then we practice them. Do you know how love grows? By loving that's how love grows. We, we stir, if, if there's a shortage of love in our life, then we stir up love by practicing it, by lavishing it on others the way we believe that it has been lavished on us. We stir up the wildness of grace by offering it everywhere in fullness like it has been offered to us. We rekindle the gifts of God within us by freely giving the gifts of God within us. By living uh, marked by the things of God, by asking the Holy Spirit to do uh, what he does inside us. By asking the Spirit of God to fill us and empower us and equip us and heal us. One of the jobs of the Spirit of God is to do those things. To equip you, to empower you, to heal you. Uh, The Spirit of God is what takes ordinary people and makes them capable of extraordinary things. Polycarp on his own is just a person. Uh, Blandina on her own is just a person. Anselm on his own, just a person. William Seymour, just a person. Charles Parham, just a person. Dorothy Day, just a person. The Wesley brothers, just a person. Go throughout church history. They are just people that the Holy Spirit has empowered and made them capable of extraordinary things. Filling them up and setting them ablaze in the world to, to take what has been given to them and to pass it on. The Holy Spirit equips the people of God to practice the gospel of God. Kingdom kingdom living is not just about believing that the words of Jesus are true. It's about actually playing, doing them, being part of them. Um, The guy that founded the Vineyard Church, John Wimber, uh, when he became a Christian, he got really excited about it. And he went to the person that was leading the Bible study he was in. And he was like, when do we get to do all the things? And the guy was like, what? And he was like, you know, I was reading about Jesus and all the stuff. When do we get to do all of that stuff? And the guy was like, oh, no, we don't do it. We pray about it and we cry about it and we sing about it, but we don't actually do it. And John Wimber was like, but the devil let me do all of his stuff when I played for his team. (laughs) The kingdom of God, it is not just about believing something happened once. The kingdom of God is about practicing it as if it's happening now. And we believe it's happening now. Practice, practice rekindles us. Practice stirs us. And we become people so marked and empowered by the spirit of God that uh, the spirit of love and grace and faith and hope that people start to ask questions. They want to know what's different about us. This is a real thing. Has this ever happened to you? Um, a few years ago, sorry, a few months ago, uh, uh, Daniel and I met some friends uh, for dinner that we don't see very often. They live in London, and so we don't get to see them very often. So Daniel and I, we show up to this restaurant to meet them, and they're sitting there, and I am so, we walk in, I see them sitting there, and I, I, I don't know if you can tell, I'm an excitable person, and I am so excited to see them, and I'm smiling from ear to ear, and I'm probably jumping up and down because I'm very weird, and I'm just so, it's been over a year since I'd seen them, and I'm just so excited, and, and, I, and, and there's, there's a few of them, and so a couple of them stand up to come home. 
hug us. And then I notice uh, two of my friends, Piers and Adam, off to the side. And they see me and they start whispering and they point and they start laughing, which is everyone's dream way of being noticed, right? <laughs> whispering, pointing, and laughing. And I'm like, maybe they forgot me. You know? <laughs> like, I, don't know, I don't know what they're doing. And, and um, so the, we, we hug and, and it's fine. The conversation goes on. I don't quit thinking about that, but the conversation goes on. And on separate occasions, they both came up to me later and said the same thing. They said, do you want to know why we were whispering at you and pointing at you, or whispering about you and pointing at you and laughing? And I was like, yes, it's all I've thought of, <laughs> right? It's all I've thought of. And I said, yes. And, and, and Adam said, it was because of your face. <laughs> what? I said, what? And he said, your face. And I said, what's wrong with my face? And he said, no, 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 no. It was your face. He said, there's just something different about your face. We talk about it every time we see you. What's so different about your face? People start to ask questions. <laughs> when you live life empowered by the Spirit of God, practicing kingdom things, people start asking questions about your face about your life, about why things look so different. Neither one of these friends followed Jesus. They don't know Jesus. How do we stir up grace and love and faith in our lives? We practice them. We live active lives as resurrection people empowered by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of love and power, not fear and timidity. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. And finally, number three, I think the, other, the third way that Paul um, tells us how we can rekindle. When we want to rekindle the gift that we have been given, we would be well served to put ourselves in the presence of the giver. Right? When we want to rekindle the gift, we would be well served putting ourselves in the presence of the giver. Paul says, I know the one whom I trust to do these things. Here's what I mean by this. When it comes to the things of God, to all of the best things, uh, the scriptures are very clear about what we should do when we find ourselves lacking in things like faith and hope and love and peace. When we find ourselves in need of rekindling, when we find ourselves needing to be stirred up, it's not a thing that we should feel guilty about that we need to be stirred up again. The scriptures address it constantly because God knows that we're human and knows that it will happen. When we find ourselves in need of rekindling, what Jesus tells his followers, what Paul tells uh, his churches in the letters, what Peter and James and all of the writers of the New Testament tell us, they all say the same thing. When we need to be stirred up, when we need more love, when we need more grace, when we need more faith, we're supposed to ask for it. When we need wisdom, we're supposed to ask for it. It's the unanimous thing throughout the New Testament. Do you need something more of God? Ask for it. A ask for it. When we want to be so full and equipped and empowered and healed by the Holy Spirit that people start asking questions, then we ask God for it. And God, who James tells us in, in his letter, is rich in mercy and abounding in love, and he will give it to us freely and lavishly. The picture of God, uh, I think that maybe that's the struggle, is we have this picture of God that if we ask for something we don't have, we're supposed to feel guilty that we don't have it. But there isn't a picture in the Bible of the God who says, you should have had that. Sorry. The picture of the God from the beginning to the end is the one who is the, the lavish giver. Who will pour his love and his faith, his spirit, his kingdom all over us. And so we 
uh, we ask for it. We ask to be filled with the Spirit so that we start to remember in the Spirit, so that we start to practice in the Spirit because we've asked for more of the Spirit of God, because it is God's good pleasure to give us more of himself. I don't know if you've ever asked God for money. I have not found that it was God's good pleasure to give me more money. I don't know if you've ever asked God for fill in the blank. It doesn't always happen exactly what we ask for, but what God will always give is more of him. When we ask for more of him, the gift is lavish and it is free and it is full. And so uh, that's how I want to spend our final minutes today is asking. Um, Because I have a hunch that this describes a bunch of us today. I think probably most of us in this room need to be stirred up in some way, need to be rekindled in some sort of way. I, 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 my hunch is that we're a room full of people who may have forgotten even just a little bit what the flames feel like, who have forgotten what it means uh, to be empowered, who have forgotten how it feels to be healed, to be um, rescued and restored. And here's the truth. We can't practice what we don't have. You ever tried to? It's exhausting. I do it all the time. It is horrible. Someone asked me, how was your week? I said, my week ate me for lunch. Because I'm practicing what I don't have, what I haven't asked for. We are people who, who always need a little bit more. And I think some of us in this room, we need more faith. And some of us in this room, we need more love or peace or patience or hope or grace. I don't know exactly what you need, but I know it's something. You're a person. So for the next few minutes during uh, Selah, we always take a breath and we're always quiet. Um, Here's what I want us to do. I want us to put ourselves in the presence of the giver. Put ourselves in the presence of the giver who will give himself to you lavishly. And we're just going to pray for a while. We might do the verses. I don't know if we'll get there or not. But we're just going to ask. We're going to ask for more, more grace for those of us who have forgotten that we've been set free. And we're going to ask for more love for those of us who in our loneliness have stopped believing that we have been chased after and sought after. And we'll ask for more faith for those of us who are teetering on the edge of it. We're going to pray and we're going to wait for God and we're going to be quiet while we wait for him. And that may be very awkward for you if quiet is not a part of your life, but we're going to do it anyway. Oh, the band can come on up. Um, Let's just be quiet for a minute and pray.